Walkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, Episode 6. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. No Prize from God is a series of conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. My guest today is Satir Wangraven, one half of Black Metal Legends Satyricon. Satir is the vocalist, guitarist, keyboard player, and bass player of Satyricon in the studio, partnered with his longtime collaborator Frost, who is one of the best drummers in metal without question. Satyricon was formed in Oslo in the early 90s, a crucial, integral, and definitive part of the Norwegian black metal scene, coming up around the same time as their friends in bands like Emperor enslaved and dark throne satyricon have released essential black metal records like 1994's the shadow throne and 1996's nemesis divina like the best and brightest of their contemporaries satyricon has worked as both a band that defines the black metal genre while transcending its boundaries september 22nd 2017 will see the release of the band's ninth studio album deep calleth upon deep in the forest when the Satir's contributions to the black metal scene and subculture stretch even beyond the music of Satyricon. As co-founder of the record label Moonfog Productions, which has been around since 1992, he's released records from Dark Throne, Gehana, Storm, Thorns, his project Wangraven, as well as a single track from the short-lived black metal supergroup Ibon. Darren from System of a Down is an avowed Satyricon fan, even helping them to temporarily team up with a major label here in North America. To the uninitiated, black metal is best known for the sensationalized headlines of the early 90s, where groups of teenagers, many of them musicians and kids otherwise involved in the scene in Norway, were arrested for church burnings, and in some cases even murder. But what those headlines neglect is the artistry, passion, hunger, and yearning for some type of connection with tribal, ancestral, shamanistic, neo-pagan, you know, something beyond the consumerism or the uh, whatever it is that causes disaffected youth to search for some type of deeper meaning across a variety of cultures to reject kind of what's being fed to them by the societal powers that be or, or parental pressure or peer groups. You know, in, in this case, these were kids who, uh, you know, around Europe and America and, and other places in the world who, you know, desecrating graves and doing obnoxious stuff and, you know, putting on corpse paint. And but at the end of the day, the vast majority of them were metal fans and music fans, and they were really hitting on something complex and in many forms if we're honest with ourselves universal many of the young men and women who were part of that early black metal scene grew to become accomplished musicians in various permutations 
Many of them are parents. Norway as a country in 2017 seems to even embrace its reputation as an epicenter for black metal and its contributions to music and youth culture. I found Satir to be among the many thoughtful individuals to have been produced by that scene. In its oftentimes theatrical and sometimes grotesque rejection of Christianity and the world's major faiths in general, black metal often strikes at the heart of the disaffection and the too often times oppression inherent in different strains of the church and its surrounding doctrine. Whatever your viewpoint about black metal and the various things that it has and has not stood for over the years, there's no denying the creativity and intelligence of a guy like Satir Wangraven, who, by the way, also has his own line of wines. <laughs> by no means is the black metal scene or black metal subculture monolithic in thought or ideology or spiritual viewpoint any more than the bands all sound exactly the same because most of them the more prominent acts don't sound anything alike these days you know particularly when they when they've evolved album by album sure there's different motifs that are kind of commonalities to that sound but that's not unlike any other musical genre and i guess what i'm trying to say here is by no means is this a blanket support for everything that's ever been done in the name of the black metal scene or many of the beliefs that are held by certain more prominent black metal individuals, nor is this a blanket condemnation. I, as somebody who is intrigued in the search and the mystery and the various extremes that we as humans go to to try to make sense of the world around us, the way that that search manifests itself in adversarial ways, in productive ways, and a sense of belonging, a sense of community, or a sense of dissatisfaction playing itself out. I'm fascinated by this stuff, and, and these are the types of conversations and things that I love uh, searching through and discussing, particularly with rational and reasonable people like Satir. And don't get me wrong, this conversation is pretty focused on music, but we also talked quite a bit about Satir's upbringing in Norway uh, and what it is about that place that's so unique and special and so integral to the art that it creates. About two years ago, in the fall of 2015, Satir was diagnosed with a brain tumor. The tumor was found to be benign and would apparently be more complicated to remove than to simply leave in there and monitor. In this conversation you're about to hear, Satir spoke candidly and honestly about living with the brain tumor and its impact on his outlook on life and art. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Satir Wangraven of Satiricon. This is No Prize from God.
up in the north of Norway and only lived there for a couple of years until my family, my father wanted to get into farming. So when I was a couple of years old, he he moved the family to a completely different part of the country, to the west coast. And so then we were there for, I don't know, a couple of years or something. He rented a, a farm and then, then he bought his own place, uh, I guess, inland, middle of the country, one could say where it's not really mountainous, but uh, the forests are far and deep. Uh, and um, so then we lived there until I was uh, 10 years old. And um, it was during that time that I would uh, become interested in hard rock and heavy metal music because I had a couple of older cousins from from up north and I would see them during my holidays. Uh, that's what I always did, you know, whether it was summer or Christmas or Easter or whatever it was, I was, I was up there or they would come down and, you know, they're a bit older than me. Uh, one of them is, uh, I don't know, three and a half years older than me and the other is uh, six years older than me. So, you know, they were listening to Zeppelin and Sabbath. I'm not not that much Sabbath really. That was something that I kind of discovered through them, but they weren't huge fans. That was something I pursued on my own. But they were Zeppelin fans and Deep Purple to a large degree. And then there were other bands, Rainbow and Aussie solo stuff and uh, Motorhead. And then when we lived on this farm in, in the middle of the country, then um, I ran into an older neighbor that introduced me to Kiss. So that was sort of the beginning of my, you know, musical journey. Uh, you were asking about, you know, life's bigger question. I mean, that was a turning point in my life. That became my life. Yes. You know? Yeah. I can. I would pass a lie detector test, claiming that uh, never dreamt of being, you know, a firefighter or a policeman or any of that stuff. I. The only thing that I wanted to do was to be in a heavy metal band. That to me seems so much bigger than everything else. To me, that would be, that was to me, that was my space travel, you know? That was, yeah. being, it was like being an astronaut. And then firefighter, policeman would seem uh, too ordinary. And it, it come like these things that completely lacked the larger than life aspect that I thought was so fascinating and attractive. And then at the age of 10, we moved to a peninsula out of, outside of Oslo. And this is where I uh, had the rest of my childhood and into my teens and early adult life. As soon as I came there already at the age of 10, again, you know, an older kid down the street and he introduced me to Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, Testament, all of that. And it just went from there. You were November 1975 and I'm November 1973. So I would imagine a lot of our touchstones, I mean, every band that you just mentioned, certainly, it sounds like we got into probably right around the same time and right, right around the same era for each of those bands. And, I'm, and, and what an amazing, pivotal time, obviously, for the thrash metal movement in the mid 80s. Uh, but also, you know, even when you mentioned Kiss, I remember getting into Kiss at the tail end of the makeup era, I had an older brother who was into Kiss, uh, you know, before that, during sort of the heyday. Uh, but for me, it was, you know, the first record I heard was Creatures of the Night. And then not that long afterwards, they were out of the makeup. It's always interesting to me, all the different eras and identities that Kiss has had, where people encounter them and how the band can still 
have such an impact even in some of their sort of more obscure or bizarre eras of their of their lineup and so on what's interesting you know at that age is that uh, it doesn't really matter when stuff is from for me like with kiss i mean i must have discovered kiss through that <clears throat> neighbor farther up down uh, like <clears throat> about a couple of kilometers from the, the farm so we moved there at what was it like 79 or something so so i'm assuming he showed me this stuff around like 82 or something like that and i don't have a slightest clue what it is that he was showing me i don't remember but i know that it wasn't until i was probably i don't know like 14 or 13 or 14 where i started relating to that this and that artist has a new record coming up you know yeah yeah so for me when i started listening to maiden you know uh whether it was whether power slave was b before or after peace of mind i you know i didn't know and i didn't care it was either it's good or it's not good so mm -hmm. Uh, didn't matter where, but when I got a little older, uh, you know, the evolution of a band started mattering more. So like, you know, after having listened to, let's say, Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning for a couple of years, you know, I started to get excited, like hearing from older kids that, you know, Metallica has a new record coming up. So then you start following a band and like what's going on with the band and you know, I saw them play live and things like that but but uh, at the early age it was just about um picking the cherries in you know various bands catalog I guess yeah yeah and that, that's sort of the the beauty of discovery especially in that pivotal formative time when you're kind of you know the genesis of your own what will become your own musical identity you know, for me, I grew up uh, in Indiana, which is, you know, a pretty nowhere <laughs> part of America, you know, so-called flyover country. I'm curious whether the, you know, farmlands of Norway and then even, you know, as you said, moving to Oslo, was there something about the theatricality and, like you said, the larger-than-life nature of heavy metal music specifically and the imagery and the sound that sort of transported you out of an ordinariness that, that was... In, you know a product of your daily life do, do you do you see some sort of connection there uh yes i do but that's just uh you know that's the nature like wherever you're at there's always going to be something spectacular that you know make makes you start imagining things like so so for example you know just using studios like you know uh recording studio services in norway it always felt you know as if it just wasn't the real deal. It was just Norwegian people in the small country trying to do, you know, what they've seen and heard about. Uh, and when it started coming to studios in America, in Los Angeles, I thought to myself, okay, so this is, you know, this is how it's really done. Uh, so there's always something, you know, bigger and better out there that, spurs you on to the next thing and and motivates you to, to work a little bit harder so that you know so that maybe you can have access to that kind of stuff yourself at some point certainly when it comes to black metal and norwegian black metal in particular you know we have satiricon we have dark throne we have emperor we have enslaved you know bands who all grew uh, to have very distinct identities apart from one another and and more than one of those bands of course that you were 
involved with directly and indirectly. What can you tell me sort of about the formative years of, of that scene and, and some of the ideas that were being exchanged even in conversation that, that made it uh, become something that was so unique and, and, and so distinct that, you know, here in 2017, it's, uh, you know, it's practically part of the Norwegian tourist industry. <laughs> you know, people, people, go, people go to Oslo and, and start, you know, looking for uh, the sacred sites of, of early black metal. Everything was a lot smaller, that's for sure. Less availability. Fewer people listening to the music, fewer people playing it, fewer outlets in terms of, you know, there wasn't that many. I mean, so let's say, um, you know, you wanted to buy an extreme metal, uh, like a black metal record. There were, you know, there were places we did sell it, but okay, so today there aren't, you know, there aren't uh that many retailers because the music industry has changed but this is during the time where there was you know a record store on every corner mm-hmm. but just to find a, a black metal record was was hard so you know tape trading and fan scenes and and uh you know helping each other out spreading flyers through the mail you know um if there was a t-shirt that you know you wanted a t-shirt from let's say you were a big fan of this band and their second record you probably have to you know try and get some people together and 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 make 10 t-shirts with that band logo and that album cover for you and your nine other black men <laughs> yeah because no one made such a t-shirt it was so uh, unknown that i think that it was hard to define i think when people saw saws around i'm not sure if they you know didn't really fit in definitely not bikers look weird compared to you know your typical iron maiden fan mm-hmm. didn't fit into that punk rock style either so i think it must have been confusing to a lot of people like you know who are those guys what is it about them what do they listen to what kind of style are they about because because we did we did look different from the people who look different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, outcasts among the outcasts. Yeah, exactly. And probably behave differently as well. So and now everything is, uh, you know, um, accessible and available. And there's, you know, you, you, if you want, if you want to know something about a band or, it's it's all out there but it was different back then that's for sure and but uh, i think the fact that it was small and uh, there were a few really good bands was important in terms of um musical growth i don't think it would have been as strong if it wasn't for the fact that there was such transparency and competition that was was positive uh, i don't think it was a type of competition that was necessarily friendly but it wasn't uh, hostile either it was a type of competition where like being good in itself wasn't good enough there would have to be something unique about you otherwise you're not gonna get accepted and i remember that was very important for me i understood that very early and i thought to myself that you know if we're gonna be a uh, a force to be reckoned with then then uh, i have to try and and not just make you know good music, but uh, try. I'm gonna have to try and come up with something that is unique and helps define Satyricon. That is something that no one else is doing in in this little scene. 
And I'm not sure that I would have felt compelled to do that and struggle to, or not struggle, but fought to achieve that if it wasn't for the transparency and that, you know, it was so small. So everyone knew what the other guy was doing and you really had to push hard to be the best version of yourself. Yeah, it's well said. I, I like that idea of the context of a, a highly creative and combustible environment where everyone's own creative spark is uh, inspiring others around them to, to push that much harder to forge their own thing. That, that makes a lot of sense when you explain it that way. Yeah. One of the most fascinating things to me about Satyricon's journey artistically is the way that eventually the band sort of came back around almost to rediscovering the blueprint of the kind of, I would say, almost primitive hard rock elements that were still present in bands like Bathory and, and Venom that were, you know, also buried in this kind of atmosphere and, and uh, you know, darkness, but were still present. I, I always thought it was interesting that uh, while Satyricon was one of the defining bands of the black metal era, that eventually the band evolved into something that was uh, almost more straightforward while still retaining some of the elements of the, the ferocity and the, the passion that was inherent in black metal. You know, some of those touchstone bands that you think were, were there for you in the beginning that continued to be part of the blueprint and part of the DNA of, of what you're doing today. I mean, I, I would point to, I, I would think Bathory and Venom would be two of those. I'm, I'm sure there's more. Well, I mean, uh, the artistic bravery of uh, Celtic Frost was always mm. inspiring to me. Yes. So I always reiterated that I'm a kind of a artist that never really felt that inspired by uh, by other people's uh, music, but rather the choices that they made. And mm. uh, I always felt that Celtic Frost they they were they were so good, but they were so brave too. I mean, they didn't like it. Wasn't like every record was. <clears throat> reinventing the wheel it was just that there was a there was always progress there were movies it seemed like okay so if you listen to um what's really what interesting is uh i mean are you well familiar with the band or? yeah yes and in fact i i would say that you know if it weren't for into the pandemonium which nothing else sounded like at that time we wouldn't have my dying bride anathema paradise lost a lot of incredible bands who did incredible things in their own right Celtic Frost definitely paved the way for, as you said, bravery. I, I even remember uh, one of my good friends at the time who was, you know, one of my, my metalhead friends that we were part of a, a small group that sat together in the cafeteria at school. We went to go buy Cold Lake the day it came out. And of course, that was like a, you know, a shocking disappointment to so many fans. Like, but I'm being thrown into a Cold Lake, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, but it's interesting looking back now that we have the vantage point of history in the context of the whole Frost catalog. Now I see it as just another, well, it's certainly not my favorite record. <laughs> I see it as just another step in bravery, so to speak, for that band where they were, you know, I mean, the, the type of uh, decisions and choices, as you said, that a lot of bands won't take now for the sake of commerce or career or stability, uh, whereas Celtic Frost just seemed like they were doing whatever, whenever, you know, wherever their muse sort of led them, even if it was... <laughs> even if it was into a very cold, cold lake. Okay, so, I mean, my point was, uh, if, if you listen to, uh, yeah, the most famous song they ever did, uh, Circle of the Tyrants, if, mm. you, if you listen to the uh, Emperor's Return version, uh, which has that 
you know, morbid tales kind of vibe to it, and then you compare it to the to Megatherium version. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because because it's so transparent when it's not just the, the same band, but it's the same song. And then you see how they express the song in a really, really different way. And I don't like one more than the other. I just, they're, they're just really different. And there's certain sections of the song which I find to be more interesting on the Emperor's Return version. And then there are other things that I find to be, uh, have more depth uh, on the, on the, the, the slower, less energetic, but perhaps darker, more orchestrated version that they did. And um, that's some, something about the evolution of the band. So I think that looking at other bands' choices uh, has been um, more inspiring to me than, than the music. And looking at, you know, uh, looking at Bathory, I I think that, well, I mean, there's a comparing the first record to Bloodfire Death. There aren't that many years between them, but uh, they're you know stylistically it, we're talking light years. Um, yeah. And but that's okay. I mean, they're both really good records, but um, they have to be understood for what they are and. They're not really comparable, and that's why it doesn't make any sense to try and compare them. So I just say that it's the same band, only a few years apart, but very, very different, and but both good. And when I see stuff like that, uh, I find that to be uh, inspiring. So, and you know, even even when even when people have you know, listen to certain satiricon records of the past and, and said black and roll. And even when they don't mean it in a bad way, they mean it in a good way. I think to myself that it's, even if it's with the best intention, it's a really stupid description because then Venom is black and roll. Mm. Then, mm. then half of a blaze in Northern sky is black and roll and a quarter of dark thrones under funeral moon is black and roll and probably the entire first battery record and certain songs on everything they did on the next three would be black and roll so it's just um it doesn't make sense to me that um like the need to try and like label something like that it's it's almost like um it's a form of insecurity because it doesn't matter. You know, it's, 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 is it good? Yeah. Okay. Fine. (laughs) That's, that's, you don't have to, you know, so sometimes again, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you know, I can talk to press who really don't mean it in a bad way, but you know, they can say that, Oh, I think your new record is blah, blah, blah. So on. So, uh, and I, I think it's just, you know, it's a lot more than just your a black metal. To me, it transcends black metal. It's this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I say thank you because I know it, it's meant as a compliment. But to me personally, it doesn't matter what it is. What matters to me is that it's fucking good. 
<laughs> yeah. I consider myself a black metal musician that play in a black metal band, and some things that I do are uh, what you would, you know, typically think of as as um, black metal in, in the way that most people associate, and other things I do doesn't fit into that. But that doesn't make me more special. It doesn't make me less true. It it as I said, it doesn't matter. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about the creative leaps uh, in a short amount of time in the Bathory catalog. You know, I always point to the Beatles. Uh, you know, they went from I Want to Hold Your Hand to uh, Let It Be, you know, within the span across the universe, you know, within a span of, of like a decade. You know, and you think about all the different eras of, you know, one of the most definitive rock bands or pop bands or whatever you want to say of, of, of all time. How much how many different shades and colors there were. They're one of the best bands ever. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, of, of the Beatles, and, and I agree with you. It's interesting, too, when you were talking about uh, the different versions of Circle of the Tyrants. I hadn't really thought about that before, and I, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, when we're done, I'm going to go back and listen to each of those versions again. I was just having this conversation the other day on a similar uh, thought about the difference between Megadeth Mechanics and Metallica the Four Horsemen and obviously that's you know two different bands and, and the arrangements are different and so on but but yeah just as you were saying there are things that I like and appreciate about each of those versions that are distinct you know I like I, I think that the Megadeth version is is faster and uh, more aggressive and has a, a bit more energy to it uh, whereas I think the Metallica version has uh, significantly better lyrics <laughs> so it's you know it's it's always interesting where it's I wouldn't even necessarily say that one's One's better or worse. Um, it's interesting to hear the evolution of a piece of music like that from where it started, you know, listening to the No Life to Leather demo version and then hearing the the finished versions by two different bands. Yeah. For you, because I know obviously this was different for different people in that sort of musical community at the time. Where did the sort of, because I know obviously Satyricon's never been a, a political band or a religious band or any, you know, waving the banner for any uh, specific ideology. I'm curious where the you know, the idea of kind of exploring the heritage in Norway um, and resisting the, you know, what's been viewed as, as kind of an occupying force of, of Christianity and Christian thought and so on. Where did that first develop for you? And did you, were your parents religious people? Did you have people in your in your family or? No religious people in my family. They uh, come from a, a family of uh, free-spirited people. You know, everyone's different. So my, uh, so my father is just, you know, always been a really practical and really hardworking guy, and uh, he doesn't talk about that stuff. And and the few times in my life where he has mentioned any anything like that, I, it's always fantastic because he will say stuff, you know, like once every decade. At the most, he'll say things like, uh, I don't believe in any of that. When you're dead, you're dead. That's all there is to it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, um, he thinks it's all nonsense. He's like, okay, you're born, you work hard, you die. The end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't want to hear about it. And my mom is um, much more... uh, spiritual uh but in in uh, in no way religious you know quite pragmatic really uh so i've i've never been in opposition 
to you know family members when it comes to any of this stuff for me it's just about um i find it offensive that you know well so typically the way it's been in in history uh truth is always in the, hand, the hands of the victor mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. You know, as a nation, we're an old nation, and I find it to be interesting that when you talk about, you know, you see here, as people say that, um, uh, well, it's it's important to, you know, protect our Christian heritage and uh, our cultural heritage as a Christian nation, and that's who we are, and that's where we're from, and I think to myself, really? <laughs> really? So that'd be like, you know, you know, that would be as if, uh, let's say, um, Muslims would take over Norway and then 2000 years from now, they say, you know, we're we're a Muslim nation and we need to uh, protect and stand up for our cultural heritage as the Muslim nation we are. You know, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't be, you know, that that would be false if that was the case, just uh, as, you know. The, the the claim even you have you have just like mainstream politicians saying that and I think to myself no that's not right I mean that's not who we are uh, and and that's not where we come from at all that's actually just a really really small part of our history and you know two thousand years of uh, Christianity in 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 uh, Western society but but not here I mean we can we can count, you know, about a thousand years in in Norway. So thinking about thinking about that, and I mean, so so there's traces of of uh, heathen culture in in Norway from what is it? Uh, forgive me if I'm not hundred percent accurate, but something like sixteen thousand years BC, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. And then you talk about the, you know, the last thousand years as a Christian nation defines us as if that's who we always been. And I, I've always felt the the need to, you know, uh, speak up against that and 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 influence people not to buy on crap like that uh, through through my music and my role as an artist. But. Mm. So that's how I see. One of the things I always respond to personally in art is, or I shouldn't say always, I mean, you know, exclusively respond to an art is a point of view. And when I say that, uh, sometimes that's mistaken for, you know, oh, I want a strong political point of view or, or this or that. And, and no, what I mean by that is an artistic point of view where you have something meaningful to say that's authentic and, and truthful to you and that you are passionate about putting forward and that can be you know that can just as easily be a song about a broken relationship um or a, a longing for you know a nostalgia about some other time and place or, or or whatever it is you know i that's what i respond to and that's one of the things that's made me a fan of your work for a long time is feeling that kind of transcendent um force of nature of uh, that you have something to say with your art 
and that you're and that you're truthful about making that for its own sake. Would you say that you know? You, I mean, you mentioned your conversations with your father, which, which I find interesting because I've I've had different conversations with my own father and and sort of watched him change and evolve with this stuff uh, over time. And we, we had a, uh, in fact, the most recent conversation we had just about a week ago. We were talking about the show The Sopranos and about the uh, famous ending of that show. And I was talking about from an artistic point of view all the different clues and and theories and things that have been put together that sort of point to and not to spoil the show if you've never seen it but it's been it's been 10 years um <laughs> the idea that you know when death happens it's just uh, complete um silence complete blackness that's just you know it, that's the end and i was just talking about that in terms of the show and the the story that the show was telling and my dad who i was actually talking to him on his birthday he just turned 70 78 uh, he says yeah you know that probably is what happens <laughs> it was just kind of one of those you know you're taken aback for a second like i have a, a same kind of relationship with my dad where it's just not something that comes up often throughout my life and yeah for him to say that to me on his 78th birthday and then i'm and then i'm kind of going why did i how did i walk us into this conversation <laughs> like, i yeah. want to walk right back out of it i'm curious do you feel any kind of connection to you know whether it's it's sort of the uh germanic heathenism and, and norse paganism and that sort of thing or do you have kind of a, a compass for that sort of stuff or are you also very more sort of pragmatic where it's just like this is i feel i feel a very strong connection with my country and my people and the nature and everything you know i think what i like about this country is um that it does feel really, really unique. You know, there are many things about it that has to improve, but that, that has more to do with us as a nation. But in terms of, I, I think most Norwegians experience if they've been traveling abroad for a long time is that one of the probably most appealing things about coming back home to Norway is uh, the crisp air. Mm. it's there's just nothing like it and uh, it feels in many ways so much more pure and untouched compared to what I would consider comparable places and you know uh, I, I you know as, 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 as a person whose job is to travel across the world I I find it so strange that there are so many there are so many places out there that where you probably shouldn't drink the tap water and if you do um it's going to taste horrible. Mm -hmm. You know, if you buy a bottle of water here you might as well just flush your money down the toilet. <laughs> yeah. Why would you do that? Uh water quality here is is excellent you know and um and, and why would you buy water in norway when you can buy Wangraven wines there you go, there you go. <laughs> so so for me it's 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 um a lot of the the strong belonging that i feel is about the unique nature that that uh that i am a part of and that you know we are really a people who who like to get out, and I think that's a good thing. And um, it's interesting 
as a Norwegian, feeling this strong connection to nature and uh, how it represents who we are and where we're from and um, that you feel united with previous generations through our nature. It's funny, uh, you know, having traveled uh, all around the U.S. touring, um, I've, I've been to almost all the states. I mean, I haven't been to Alaska, I haven't been to Hawaii. I'm not sure if I've been to Rhode Island and Maine and places like that, but that's pretty much it. The rest, I've been there and most of them several times. Uh, Indiana too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because many of the places that um, have something about them actually to some degree resemble Norway hmm. um, are places where I never hear people talking about that. You know, when I like, for example, traveling through places like Wyoming, you know, a lot of the nature there that actually really reminds me of Norway. It has, but I don't hear a lot of Americans talking about places like that. And then I ask myself, is it because, you know, they can only go so many places and they rather see Manhattan or is it because they're not aware or because they, you know, are want to pursue different things in life. But I don't know, like I hope to be able to one day explore nature in, in the States more because there are, yeah, there are certain states in America that at least judging from, you know, looking out the lounge window of a, of a tour bus, just have spectacular nature that I would really like to, you know, go trekking in and, 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 uh, and become a part of. That's incredible. And that's, yeah, and that, that's a whole, uh, I'll email you some ideas at some point. <laughs> a lot, a lot to say there. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, lastly, that feel free to tell me, uh, it's none of my business and we can edit it out. You had mentioned, you know, on your Instagram account, I think a couple of years ago, uh, that you'd been diagnosed with, um, the brain tumor. And I was just curious, uh, if there was an, an update on your health in that regard and if things are, things are the same or better or worse or, Sure. Um, well, for the most part, I'm doing quite well. Um, it was never, you know, anything life-threatening in the way that it's just, it's benign. So um, uh, in theory, its presence could kill me, but uh, that's just highly unlikely. A lot of things would really have to go wrong at the same time. And like when you know what's there and if you start getting, um, you know, a lot of, so if I was to get a lot of heavy symptoms, I wouldn't be guessing. I, I, I know mm. what it, I know what it is and I know what I need to do and I know, you know, uh, where I need to go and I'm being, I'm uh, being monitored. So that's just, that's not going to happen. So for me, it's more, uh, it's been like this, uh, uh, you know, first you, you know, uh, you discover it and you go, oh no, like why, you know, and yeah. you start thinking, uh, you know, I haven't enough stuff in my life and, and, and to deal with, uh, something like grave like this, it's the least thing you want. And then, 
and then um, and then quickly at least I started thinking like okay well so it is what it is um, what are we going to do about this and I started thinking in a very practical sense I started thinking well okay I know a lot of people uh, so I need to take advantage of all my contacts and just trying to get the best possible help out there um, I'm a resourceful person. Uh, I should use that to my advantage now more than anything that I've ever done because nothing's more important than this. Uh, and um, just kept saying to myself that um, every time someone says, uh, you can't do that, uh, get in line, then, then I'm not going to do what they tell me. And no matter how awkward it makes me feel and makes them feel I'm gonna have to stick up for myself because at the end of the day I can't expect anyone else to fight that fight for me so that was my that was my attitude and my mental approach from day from day one and then uh, like anyone else in a similar situation just gathering information and uh, you know try to become an expert yourself and then I've kind of gone from there and I've, I've learned to how to adjust because most of the time um, there's nothing out of the ordinary with me, but from time to time, you know, I'll have, uh, you know, rather extreme headaches, or I'll have, uh, I'll be nauseous, uh, dizzy, uh, sometimes some, um, uh, some issues with my vision and, or shaking of my hand, things like that. Mm. Um, but, but that's normal. Like that's not something, uh, so, you know, my neurosurgeon was kind of like, yeah, yeah. So that's textbook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. That, and that's comforting when you hear that, you know, when, when they're like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. That's no big deal. We, yeah. Yeah. It would be really different uh, if he said, oh, really? <laughs> 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 yeah. could, could you tell me more about that? This is the first I've heard of this. <laughs> exactly. No, so I, 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 um, I, I felt I felt actually really relieved when I met, you know, the neurosurgeon in Norway that has dealt with this the most and he just all right yeah so so this is what it's like when you know in your situation and and um he said you know forget about that other hospital you should just come see me and uh mm. and we'll look after you and and that's what they do and then most of the time you know life's pretty normal the i think the only thing that really um I find to be hard is that um, it's a kind of a state where you you never really know uh, when your day is gonna turn bad. So that kind of sucks. Like if you get up in the morning and you haven't, you know, I've felt good for a month and then all of a sudden, like three or four hours into the day, I start to feel terrible and you think to yourself, so what's going to happen now? Is this going to go away in a couple of hours, or you know, uh, should I call someone? Or and um, um, to 
to be honest with you, the, the, the only thing that I find to be difficult is this uncertainty of not knowing whether lightning will strike from a blue sky. That's, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the shit that can cross your mind. Like when you're out driving on a highway, for example. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was going to say actually is, is to a large degree, you know, we all, you know, you have kind of that metaphorical cartoon anvil hanging over your head and in, in terms of this condition but at the same time we all do just with mortality in general you know you just you you have you have a, a physical reminder of it inside your head but we all have a intangible reminder in our head we just tr try to ignore it all day yeah uh, that's true uh, so that's that's really where i'm at uh, i just try and uh, and uh, focus on my daily tasks and do that well and and that serves me well, and then I just have to make adjustments. I feel much more bad for those people who, you know, walk around with something terminal. And and uh, I had, at the same time as I, probably just three weeks before I was hospitali hospitalized uh, the first time, a good acquaintance of mine and a good colleague, uh, Musician uh, had uh, he was diagnosed with um, with uh, some some form of uh, uh, stomach cancer, and uh, I felt that what he was going through was a lot worse because you know I think to myself like you know all the stuff that he had to do. I mean he's fine and he's cancer free, but first of all it was malignant. He had he had to do surgery. He kind of screwed up his whole system, and he fucking had to walk around for weeks with diapers because they, you know, fucked up his whole system. And how undignified is that for a grown-up man to be able to do that? And and uh, even when he told me that I'm doing fine, just by looking at him, I could tell that you know he he did not look fit and strong and so just like you know the word brain tumor in itself is is terrifying but it doesn't have to be uh that brutal and uh and nowadays you hear about you know um malignant cancers you know tumors and 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 and, and, and you hear about all these people who survive and you know they yeah. just continue with their lives but but having, you know, having uh, known a couple of guys that have gone through that and are doing well, just seeing them going through that, it looks horrible. It really like, like the treatment they have to go through, it really breaks people down. Um, so in my book, that's, I'd rather deal with what I'm dealing with than, than what they've been through, to be honest with you. And does that, you know, obviously those of us who are into heavier music and and i would say into art in general but you know certainly we deal with these meditations on life and death all the time did you find especially in the beginning did this have you thinking about your mortality a little more and and you know do you have opinions or ideas about what you know if there's anything beyond what we see and feel in this life or or is this it and make the most of it well what, what's been important to me is is to to do the things that I feel that I have to do. I mean, I I always considered myself a person that 
could not afford visual arts, so I I always felt that my my interest and love for visual arts was expressed through my visits to museums and galleries and through buying art books and magazines, and that was all there was to it. And as I came out of my first hospital stay, and I was lying in bed home all the time, and and I thought to myself. Um, so what's all this work for? I mean, all the, with my work ethics and the drive um, that I have and uh, um, the persistence that I show in the, in the, you know, in the, in my energy and my effort, like, what is it all for? Like paying the electricity bill? I mean, mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, this is this is bullshit. And and then I decided right there and then then that now I'm gonna start buying art. I felt as if that was something that I had to do because because it's just it's not right that all of the money that I make should go to paying for all these practical things. It's just um I almost felt like um and a form of injustice. And then I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to be able to, you know, buy a, a ton of things, but, but then I started looking into, especially prints, you know? So mm -hmm. I did buy a few originals as well, but a lot of prints, uh, and, uh, that was very important to me and that has helped, um, that it's, well, I, I, I feel inspired by being surrounded by visual arts. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's powerful. I, you know, I just, it, it's funny for different, different, you know, arrived at the, a similar conclusion through different means, but yeah, I started buying art for the first time myself a few years ago and had that same, uh, <laughs> I had a friend actually who explained to me, well, you know, you can, you can buy prints <laughs> and yeah, same thing. I have, uh, like two originals, um, of things I like. And then, yeah, I have a, a prints all around, all around the house now. And, and yeah, and it is exactly, as you said, it's inspiring to anything creative that you sit down to do to have that stuff around you. Yeah, it is. I love it. it so new Satyricon record comes out September 22nd. What is the, uh, next few months look like for you and, um, when and where can, people come and see you uh so up until that point uh, it's all about preparing uh, uh for uh, september 22nd and we're gonna start off with doing a a rooftop gig in in uh, oslo on top of a high riser so kind of similar to the Beatles. I was just, uh, I was just about to say, speaking of the Beatles, when we, were, when we were talking about the end period of the Beatles, that was exactly what I was picturing was them on the roof. So yeah, and we are full circle. <laughs> so we're going to do that. Um, that will be our release party and that's going to be invited guests and competition winners. And then, and then the uh, day after we head to Hamburg uh, in the North of Germany to start our Euro tour, continuing to Latin America. And the region tour. Um, then uh, after Christmas and New Year, it's it's going to be uh, Russia, Greece, and the band's first trip to Israel. And and there's going to be another European tour in the spring of next year. And then if everything goes well with visas and work permit, 
our first visit to the U.S. in, well, it'll be nine years then, uh, in May, June next year. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I appreciate your candidness and uh, straightforwardness and um, taking some time out of what is obviously a very busy day and series of days to, to have this conversation. Thank you. All right. I wish you the best with your podcast. That does it for this episode of No Prize from God. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing here, please rate and review the podcast. Give us one of those five-star ratings and say something nice in the iTunes store. And the reason why I'm asking you to do that is because the more ratings and positive reviews we get, the higher the visibility and the more people that can discover this show. Check out some of the past episodes with incredible guests like Maddie Mullins from Memphis Mayfire, Jesse Leach from Killswitch Engage, Tim McTagg from Under Oath, Episcopal Priest and Theologian Broderick Greer, and my old friend, Dwid Hellion of the Band Integrity. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at Superhero HQ. You can find No Prize from God on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. No Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. You guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.